We're going to spend some time now reading from God's Word, the Bible. And our reading is from the second book of Corinthians, chapter 5. Um, you can find that on page 818 of the Black Pew Bibles. And we're reading the whole of chapter 5 and through into chapter 6, verse 2, beginning at verse 1. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made for us this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad." Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was recon reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore God's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favour, I heard you and in the day of my salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. Thanks, Penny. Please keep your Bibles open there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's a long chapter, a great chapter, and we're going to pray for God's help as we look at it tonight. So please join me as I pray. Uh, Father, we've got so much to thank you for. Thank you for this building where we can gather tonight. Thank you for the uh, people who sit around us. Thank you, Father, for your powerful word in our own language. 
Thank you for sound systems. Uh, thank you for the Spirit who illuminates the Word and enlightens our minds. Uh, we thank you, Father, that you long for us to have a deeper and more intimate relationship with you. And so I pray that as your word goes out tonight, uh, you would change us, that you know, Lord, what each of us here need to know. And so I pray that you would uh, teach us those things tonight. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Friends, what, what you know changes what you do. Think about that statement. What you know changes what you do. So the information that you know is going to impact your behavior and and your attitude to everything. So if I knew that uh, the the stock market was going to rebound in two weeks' time, if I knew that for a fact, that would influence what I do now, uh, whether I invest in property or invest in stocks and shares. I know something about the future. If I knew... If I knew for certain uh, that tomorrow it was going to be a hailstorm or a rain, that would impact what I do tomorrow. If I knew for certain that I know, the building that I'm living in now is just temporary, I've just moved in, say, and I, I know I'm just there for three months, it impacts what I do because I don't bother to unpack all the boxes and I don't bother to put up paintings because it's just temporary. If I knew that, I know, next, next Friday was going to be my last day on earth and the Lord would take me to glory, that would impact what I do in the next three, four, five days. Now, what you know impacts what you do. Uh, same as your past. Your past shapes you. What's happened to you in the past shapes who you are today. And friends, it's exactly the same with God. What you know about God has got to change what you do now. What you know about what God has done in the past and what God has promised to do in the future and guaranteed that he will do in the future, it's got to shape what you do in the here and now. Your attitude towards life and death and church and marriage and relationships and time and money, every aspect of your life has got to be shaped and got to be changed by what you know about the future and the past. And the Apostle Paul had grasped that. And I want to share with you tonight two things that the Apostle Paul had grasped, he knew, and see how it impacted his life. The first one is this. Paul knew that he was heading for home. That's the first thing he knows, I'm heading for home. Let me ask you, Where is your home? Simple question, where is your home? You might be thinking about Sydney's my home, or you might be thinking about the bricks and mortar that that you live in, or maybe you're thinking about the place where you grew up and your family home. Where's home? It's a question I find really hard to answer because I've got a home in the UK, and that's where my family are, and that's where my schooling was, and that's where I grew up, and but on the other hand, Sydney is home because that's my bricks and mortar and my possessions and my friends and I'm kind of torn between is UK home or is Sydney home? Where is my home? I don't know whether you've ever been on a, on a beautiful holiday. I chatted to someone just before the service. A fantastic holiday. And you can be in the most amazing places 
with the most amazing food, but something inside of you just wants to, just wants to be home with your loved ones and the place where you really belong. And Michael Bublé has got a, a, a great song. I'm not going to sing it to you. He talks about how you know, he flies around the world and he stays in the best hotels and the best foods in Paris and London and Rome, but do you know what? I just, just want to be home. just want to be home with the people that I love and the place where I belong. And if you ask Paul that same question, where's your home? He would say this. He'd say, heaven's my home. This isn't home. I'm heading for home. He understood. He knew that this life is not all there is, that this is not home. And sure, we love life and you enjoy this life and you might buy a house and you might settle down and you might make the most of all the medical advances to prolong this life, but this is not home. And the body that you live in is not permanent. It's just temporary. And if you've grasped that, it will radically change the way you live now. Uh, Paul has an extraordinary verse down in verse 8. It blew my mind this week. Look at verse 8. We're confident, I say. Look at these words. I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Extraordinary. I would rather die and leave this earth and be away from this body, and I want to be home. I want to be with my Lord Jesus Christ. How can Paul say that? What does Paul know that enables him to say those words? Uh, He knows that the body that he lives in is just a tent. He calls it an earthly tent in verse 1. He says, we know if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed or dismantled, literally, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. What does he know? Verse 1, the earthly tent that we live in. The body is earthly. It's made from dust. It's just a, a collection of, of blood and fibers and cells and organs. But it's just what? It's just a tent. Why do you think he calls it a tent? What is it about a tent? A tent is it's temporary. It's transient. It's vulnerable. It's not particularly sturdy. If you go camping in a tent, uh, you don't put up your pictures in your tent, do you? It's just a temporary accommodation. And tents are what? They're just dismantled. That's the word he used in verse 1. It's destroyed or literally dismantled. Either, either you take it down or it's blown down by the storms and the winds and the rain. It's like, it's like your body. The body that you live in is slowly being dismantled like a tent. You know, one pole is removed. So your hair falls out and then another part of your body sprouts hair that you never knew existed. And another pole is dismantled and your, your joints start to ache a bit. And another pole is dismantled and maybe part of your organs start to decay. It's called the aging process because you're just living in a body called a tent. And if you get that, if you get that, then actually you just have a right view to your body. It's just temporary. It's just transient. This is not home. And Paul can say, it's okay. I can get old And my body can fall apart, but that's okay because I've got a house waiting for me. Verse 1, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed or dismantled, we do have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven and not built by human hands. Look at the contrast. It's the building rather than the tent. 
It's from God and not made by man. It's eternal. It's not temporary. It's in a much classier neighborhood. It's in heaven, not on earth. And he says, I am confident because I would rather have an imperishable, an immortal, an eternal resurrection body than this slowly decaying body of mine here on earth. See, Paul can't wait to get his new home. Paul lives on earth longing for his new home. And he knows that's going to involve death, but that's okay. So verse 2, meanwhile we groan and we're longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. I'm sighing and I'm groaning and I'm waiting. I just want this, this unclothed body of mine just to be clothed with these beautiful clothes called my heavenly clothes. It's kind of like you've got an Armani suit waiting for you in heaven, and these are just these dirty old tracky-dacks which you're just going through life, just getting rid of, getting dirty. It doesn't matter because they're just temporary. And as I live on this earth, again, verse 3, I don't want to be found naked on that last day, but while I'm in the tent, while I'm in this body, I groan, I'm burdened, I weigh down, because I don't wish to be unclothed, but I want to be clothed. I'm longing to go home. Paul is certain of heaven. He understood, verse 5, that God has made his body for this very purpose. God had guaranteed him by his spirit, by the spirit dwelling in him. He's got an eternal body, and therefore he's confident, and he just wants to go home. Look again at verse 7, or verse 6 rather. We know that as long as we're at home in this body, we're away from the Lord. If he decides to decorate his tent and make his tent a permanent dwelling. Actually, he's away from the Lord. He, he can't see Jesus face to face. He's still living by faith and not by sight. Do you know, I reckon that's the problem, that we're actually content to live by faith and not by sight. We're just satisfied with a, a substandard view of Jesus we're dazzled by this world and we're quite happy in this world and we're just happy to have faith and we're not really just longing for that day when we will see him fully and see his glory and live by sight and not by faith. But Paul had grasped that and that's why he says in verse 8, I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I would prefer, I long to be with my Lord in eternity. Imagine that you're on an aeroplane and you've been on the best holiday you can think of and you're coming home and you've got your family and your friends and all your possessions waiting for you and you're sitting on the plane and you could choose to make that plane your home. Some people do actually, don't they? They take on, on board the plane Basically, all their possessions, massive things, you know, all their clothes and their hair straighteners and their pillows and trying to make the plane as comfortable as possible. But can you imagine you sit on that plane for 24 hours and the plane comes into land and the plane comes to a standstill and you're home. And the air steward or pilot says, welcome home. Please remain seated until the plane comes to a complete standstill. And then everyone gets off the plane, and you sit there, and you go, actually, no, I really like it here. (laughs) Ah, the food was fantastic. 
the bathrooms, I love the flush of that toilet. Can I just stay here? It's utterly ridiculous, isn't it? Because the plane is just temporary. You're home. And you've got to have that attitude towards life, my friends. It's just a plane journey. Living in a tent, heading for home. And we should be longing for that plane journey to end. To get off the plane and just to be with the person we love, the Lord Jesus Christ. I love life and I love good food and good wine and travel and theater and all that Sydney's got to offer. And I've been challenged this week. Can I say the words of verse 8? I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. It's what Paul says throughout the letters, you know, to die is gain. I long to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. Can you say that? I long to depart and be with Christ. I want to be with my Lord. And if you can say that, if you grasp that, if you know that, that you're heading home, it changes everything. It will change your attitude towards death. Because death is not your enemy anymore. It just means it's the process you go through to get home. And yes, you know, you fear the process. You fear the pain. And you fear what you might go through. But it's okay because you're going home. I reckon if I surveyed people, we'd all say, I want to go home. I want to go to heaven. But we'd say, I'd rather it was later than sooner. Because I'd rather that I had my, my marriage and my kids and my grandkids and my job and my travel plans, and I'd rather all those things. And the extraordinary thing about Paul, he said, I'd rather it was sooner than, than later. And that's because he understood how amazing his Lord Jesus Christ is. He just wants to be with him, see him face to face. And if he understood that, it does change actually towards death. It's painful to leave people behind, but actually, I want to go home. And it changes the attitude towards people that you know and love who have died. If they've died in Christ, they've gone home. You know, they finally got rid of their tent. And they've got their permanent dwelling. And it's for us who are left behind, we grieve and we mourn and we cry. And the, the loneliness is intense. And maybe we're, we're faced with unrealized expectations and heartache. But friends, please, but please don't be disappointed for them. They're home with the Lord. We're the ones left behind. There's a story of a, of a young girl. And her dad died when she was eight years old. And her mummy tried to explain death to her. And she said, Daddy has gone to be with Jesus. At church a few months later, uh, over morning tea, someone said, came up to the woman, and the woman said, yeah, I, I lost my husband a couple of months back. And a little girl chimed and she said, Mummy, we haven't lost him. We know where he is. You told me he's with Jesus. And it's a... A simple story, but it's just beautiful because stop using language like we've lost them or they've passed on, but they've gone to be with Jesus, which is better by far. See, Mr. Tears, please, please say they've gone to be home with the Lord and long for that yourself. And that will change the way you live now because look at verse 9. 
Because I'd rather be at home with the Lord, so we make it our goal to please Jesus. To live for Jesus, whether we're at home in the body now or away from it. Our goal is to please Jesus. What does it mean to please somebody? To please somebody means that we do things that we know satisfies them and honors them. Things that they want us to do that brings them glory. And if you understood you're heading for home and being prepared for heaven, in the here and now, you will want to do things that please your Lord and Savior to prepare yourself to meet him face to face. See, we could say because his body is being dismantled, because it's just a tent, it doesn't matter what I do. And Paul says, no, 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 exactly the opposite. It does matter what you do because the purpose of you being here is to prepare you for your heavenly dwelling, your permanent dwelling So take note and do what pleases Jesus. Because, verse 10, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us, no exception. And we're going to give an account. And each one will receive what is due for him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. He's not talking about salvation in verse 10. He's not questioning your destiny. If you're in Christ, you can be certain of heaven. But, friends, on that last day, you'll either receive praise or disappointment from your heavenly father, depending on what you've done whilst in the body. It matters how you live now. That's the first thing he knows. Heaven's my home. What else does he know? The second thing he knows is this. And this is mind-blowing. He says, I'm reconciled to God. Now, please don't switch off. Please don't think you've heard this before. Please don't think, yeah, 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 I I know, I understand the cross. This is the most extraordinary truth that if you really have grasped it, it's got to change the way you live now. Please never become tired of this truth. If you're tired of it, you've got a problem. Look at verse 14. Paul is utterly, utterly convinced. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced. What's he convinced of? That one died for all, and therefore all died. Look at that verse again. One died for all. Christ died for all humanity. The scope of the cross was, was all-encompassing, if you want. He, he's not saying everyone will be saved, but he's saying the cross was sufficient for all people to be saved. It's effective for those who believe. But one died for all. Look at that word, for. One died for all, on behalf of all, instead of all. Jesus died the death that all of us should have died for the sins and the rebellion and the ignoring of God. And therefore, what does he say? One died for all, and therefore all died. Now, does that verse shock you? You expect him to say, one died for all, and therefore all did not die. Or you expect him to say, one died for all and therefore all lived. He doesn't say that. He says, one died for all and therefore all died. Not died physically. What does it mean that we all died? Look at verse 15. Look at the context. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We died in that we died to sin. We died to self. We died to the old way of life because we're now different. Because we're now reconciled to God. And that's the most incredible truth. I am reconciled to my maker. I'm friends again with my creator. It's there in verse 18. 
All this was from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It's not a word we use much today. What does it mean to be reconciled? Look at verse 21. If you want to do a memory verse this week, please memorize 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him Jesus who had no sin. Uh, Jesus, a fully human, born of a virgin, but he had no sin. He was perfect. He was spotless. Yes, he was tempted, but without sin. Literally, he, he knew no sin. He had no personal acquaintance with sin. So for every minute of every day of every 33 years he had on earth as a child as an adolescent as a 20 something as a single man in his 30 he had no sin no bitterness no anger no selfishness no impurity no greed no lying he was utterly sinless what does the verse say god made him who had no sin to to be sin to be sin <laughs> Not just taking on human likeness. It's not saying that God made him to be a sinner. It's not just that God made him a sin offering, you know, transferred our sin onto his shoulder, which he did do that. But it's more than that. God made him to be sin. In that, he treated him as a sinner. He treated him as one who deserved the wrath of God. And the hatred of God. The one, of her, one who deserved to be punished from God. And that's why Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the Father turns the face away. He made him who had no sin to be sin. It's kind of like you've got, imagine you've got these two massive mountains. Uh, and they're full of dirt and they're full of grime and they're full of sludge. And they're just ugly, ugly mountains. In the middle of these mountains you've got this beautiful, beautiful valley with pure pure water and a pure streams and imagine that moment in history this happens and tumbling down the mountain comes all the grime and all the dirt and all the filth into the valley into the valley onto christ who's made sin for you and so those mountains are now perfect and spotless and pure god made him who had no sin to be sin look at the next two words for us for you and for me he did it for you. He did it for me. Jesus didn't come here to fix up our world. He came to become sin for me and for you. And that is the most crazy, extraordinary exchange in history, isn't it? On the one side, Christ who is sinless. On the other side, us who is utterly, utterly sinful. And God makes him sin so that we can be sinless or pure and righteous. Look at the verse again. God made him who had no sin to be sin for you and for me so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, I think we miss this point. The cross is not just about your sin being transferred onto the shoulders of Jesus. The cross is about a two-way exchange that your sins goes onto him and his righteousness comes onto you. So that you might become the righteousness of God. That might God, God might see you as pure and spotless and blameless and righteous. Now that blows my mind. 
I understand that he might take my sin, but that God might see me as righteous. Now let me ask you, what did you do in that verse? What did you do in that verse? You did absolutely nothing. God did it. God did it all. And he did it for you. And that's called reconciliation. That he sees you in your ugly, sinful state. And he calls you home. So you can stand before your maker. The one that you've lied to. The one that you've been selfish before. The one that you've spat on and stolen from and hurt so deeply. And he embraces you because of Christ. And if you've got that, it's got to change everything. It's got to change what you do now. It's got to change your attitude towards other people. Uh, see, when Paul understood it, he says that in verse 16, so from now on we, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we, don't, we do so no longer. You don't judge people through the worldly appearances like neighborhood that you live in or the car you drive or the school you attended because if you grasp that you've done nothing to deserve reconciliation and actually they deserved, sorry, they can be reconciled by doing nothing. You see, it's almost like uh, Paul puts on these, what I call the Damascus Road spectacles. You know, uh, before the Damascus Road, he, he, he viewed Christ from a worldly point of view. He expected this great conquering Messiah, but then suddenly on Damascus Road, God opened his eyes and he put on these new spectacles. He could see Christ in all his glory. And then he started to see people differently. And he started to see people as sinners needing reconciliation and sinners needing the grace of God. And he stopped judging people by, you know, what university they went to, what degrees they had, and said, no, you're just a human being who needs to be reconciled to God. And if you've had that Damascus Road spectacles on, it does change the way that you see people. The people around you, your family, your friends, they're just a sinner in need of God's grace. But more than that, when you've understood it, you start to plead with them to look at Jesus. Because he says in verse 14 that Christ's love compels us. Or in verse 11, we know what it is to fear the Lord and so we try to persuade men. If you're convinced by this, if you've understood that, that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled, then you, you do say the words of verse 20. We implore you on Christ's behalf, please be reconciled to God. Please accept Jesus as your Savior. And I plead with you. And you don't care what people think about you. I love verse 13 when he says, if I'm out of my mind, it, it's for God's sake. Uh, people can think that I'm crazy. People will think I'm utterly, utterly crazy, but it's okay because I'm just preaching the gospel. But actually, I'm going to be my right mind. I'm going to make sure that, that people can understand the gospel because I care for them that much. If you've grasped reconciliation, you see people through these spectacles and you plead with them, be reconciled to God. And I was thinking, wh wh why do we find it so hard to say those words to people? Be reconciled to God. Why don't we talk about Jesus more often. And we could say it's fear. And we could say, you know, I'm just anxious in case I get it wrong. But I just wonder whether we haven't fully understood the glory of reconciliation in the same way that Paul had. 
that just drove him, motivated him to keep on talking about Jesus. We haven't had that real Damascus Road experience where we've just had, the whole world is just different now because I've understood reconciliation. You can never be bored of the cross. Lastly, it does change your attitude towards yourself because you've understood this and you understand that you are a new creation. Verse 17, if anyone's in Christ, if they put their security in Christ, we are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That is your biography. I'm a new person in Jesus. I've been born again, if you want. And so you no longer live for yourselves, verse 15. It's not about you, it's about Jesus. You wake up each day and say, I want to serve Jesus today. And as verse 19 says, God gave, so verse 18, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, we're not apostles, but we have been entrusted with the message. And there's still people here in Kirribilli who need to hear about Christ. To wake up every day just going, I'm a new creation. I don't live for myself today. I want to preach Christ today. If I was going to leave you, I'm going to leave you with the same words and the same urgency that Paul had in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, as God's fellow workers, we urge you, we plead with you not to receive God's grace in vain. If he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the, time, in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor, and now is the day of salvation. So friends, if you're here today and you've never really understood Calvary, you've never understood the cross, you've never really come to the foot of the cross and said, Jesus, you died for me. I am pleading with you. And my heart does ache for you because to be reconciled to God is the most beautiful thing in the world. And today, today is a day of salvation. Please, do that today. And if you have done that in the past, I'm just pleading with you that things that you know about the future and things that you know about the past will radically change who you are and radically change what you do in the here and now. Let me pray. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, please help us to just to know these two very simple but, but uh, profound truths that we're heading for home and in Christ we are reconciled to you. Father, please implant this so deeply in us that it shapes us and changes us. Makes a church, Lord, that longs to, to go home and seeks to persuade men that need to be reconciled to you. I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen.